John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were able, I'm sorry, about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because of a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. There were lessons to be gleaned here for the church and the church age and even our church here today. We saw that this is the place where the Lord showed what He could do with the most humble offerings as He took this lunch of this young boy, more than likely given given to him by his loving mother, and the Lord was able to multiply this humble offering in the lives of so many people. We learned in that that we're not to be manufacturers of ministry, we're just simply to be distributors of ministry. We are to freely give as the Lord has freely given to us. It's what the Apostle Paul said at Every time we celebrate communion, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, I just give to you what has been given to me. And we need to be of that mindset. We need to be of that mindset. What does God bless Calvary Chapel, Ontario with? Well, whatever it is, it's enough, and it's what is necessary. It's enough for our ministry, and it's what's necessary to meet people for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's those things that we are to be distributors of. The source of the ministry? Well, the source of ministry is to be, well, it happens when divine resources meet human need. People need Jesus Christ out there, so God provides us for that very purpose. We saw the heart of the people that followed the Lord as they were seeking what they wanted rather than what the Lord was given. They saw that this was a man who could do something for their life here on earth, rather than seeing the eternal life that he offered. To them, Jesus was just an exciting new phenomena. In verse 14 it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Well, Deuteronomy 18.15 speaks of that prophet. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So throughout the ages, Israel was waiting for that prophet that was going to be raised up like Moses. And now they believe that they have found him. And so verse 15 starts off with, therefore. Therefore, why for? Well, because they were about to make him king. And that is why the Lord went off to be by himself. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. What's the problem with that? Why would that be an issue? Well, first, with Jesus presented as a worldly king, there would be problems with Rome. Now again, keep in mind what the Jewish mindset is. Finally, here's the man. This is the man who has been prophesied throughout the scripture, the mighty Messiah. The mighty Messiah who is going to restore us, because a man is always scheming and thinking in the flesh, they're going to restore us back to the days of King David or maybe even King Solomon, or our, our glory days. And I would imagine in that they're thinking, what's in it for ourselves? 
Well, we know that if that would have happened, if they would have set him up, Christ up as king, king of a worldly kingdom, Rome, Rome would have considered this to be treasonous and rebellious. Rome was quick to put down all uprising, and their guy was Herod at the time. Also, think of the disciples. The disciples would have become pretty famous and very powerful, and they were ill-prepared for that at this point in time. There's still much preparation that is needed, and then the sending and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, this was still their mindset after Christ had been crucified, after he had been raised, and just before he ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're looking for the very same thing, even at that late point, that the people are looking for here in John chapter 6, and that they were looking throughout all of the scriptures. They were looking for the restoration of an earthly, a powerful earthly kingdom. But he said to them, back to Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know times nor seasons which the Father has put in his authority. Well, we know that that kingdom is going to be established, but it's going to be a millennial kingdom. We see this in the book of Revelation chapter 20. He says, don't worry about all of that. But then he gets personal. But you, but you, this is your, my plan for you and your purpose as I leave, in essence, he's saying, but you shall receive power. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for power, but they're looking for power for the purpose of privilege. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be not kings and princes and prime ministers, but you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, until the end of the earth. So he's saying that, yeah, the kingdom is going to be a worldwide kingdom, but just not how you guys are thinking. It's not going to be something that you're going to be exalted or glorified in. It's going to be something that you're going to be, and we know from their experience and our, our experience as well, this is going to be something that you're humbled in. But I'll give you the power. I'll give you the power that you'll be able to do that. I'll give you the power that you'll be able to die to yourself. I'll, be, I'll give you the power that you'll be able to overcome your, your fears and your concerns. I'll give you power to be able to change and to alter lives. Now your kids today, in class, they're, they're learning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, they're learning of the existence of God. And as I had the opportunity to give devotions to the teachers today, we looked at that, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. And we showed how, well, if you can buy that, if you can believe the very first of the Bi- verse, the very first verse of the Bible, then the rest isn't so hard. And then again, the first chapter. You see chapter and you see creation and all that transpired there. If you truly believe in that, well, is it such a big deal for the other miracles that Jesus did? I was talking to Dwight, and he said that, well, okay, for Jesus to raise somebody from the dead versus to create man from nothing, what's the hardest thing to do? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, he made man from absolutely nothing. At least with a dead guy, you got the raw material there and breathed life into that. And so in Genesis chapter 1, if you can believe that, then the rest of the Bible, it's not so hard. And so the Lord here, he's establishing his kingdom, in in Acts chapter 1. He's trying to put these things in proper perspective, but it's a perspective that man will never have until he is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
because it's the Holy Spirit. We think of power and we think of ability and all of that, but how about just the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to give us insight, insight and understanding to God's word, God's reasons, and God's purposes, or to sum it all up, God's will for your life. And the second reason that this would be a big problem, it's not the plan of the Father. This isn't God's plan for salvation. In fact, for Jesus to be established as king, well, we know he must first be humbled and lifted up. There was a previous attempt at this in Matthew chapter 8 verses I'm sorry, chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Now, look at what's going on from the perspective of the devil. He tried to tempt him. He tried to tempt Jesus Christ through an offer of power. Well, that didn't work. But now what is he seeing? He's seeing the Lord look at the multitudes, and he's seeing the compassion that the Lord has. So he's thinking, okay, well, it didn't work when I played off the power. How about if I consider the compassion that the Lord has and try to manipulate that? Because what does the devil do? The devil's a deceiver. He's trying to constantly work his schemes. And it doesn't surprise me that maybe that's what he's doing here. And so maybe his compassion for the people would cause him to consider to become king even right now. A reality, if the kingdom is established at this point, if the Father's plan is avoided, there's no cross. There's no cross, there's no sacrifice. And if there's no sacrifice, there's no salvation for sin. Even the apostles, again, put this in proper perspective. They think this is the guy, establish the kingdom, and you know I'm going to be vice king, and I'm going to be prime minister, I'm going to be all of this thing. Well, if that happens, it's just going to be a temporary luxury, if you will, because sooner or later they're going to die. And if the price was not paid for their sins, they die in their sins. Now, the previous Old Testament saints, they died in faith in what God was going to do. But if Christ establishes his kingdom, then he's not going to do what God's plan is, and then it's hopeless for all of mankind. And so they got what a lot of people are looking for, this temporary kingdom, but it's a kingdom that falls apart at the death of those who serve in it. So once again, we need to remember that these lessons that are given here in John chapter 6, or at least in the first half up to verse 21, are to prepare the disciples to continue on when Christ is done. So we saw that in the feeding of the 5,000, and now we have another valuable lesson for the church today. This is the essence of discipleship, what we're looking at. So Jesus is departed to be alone and to pray. We're not told specifically what he is praying for, but probably the plan of the Father and the disciples' heart as well. The disciples, they depart also but they have a date with a storm. A date with a storm. Y'all have a date for the storm. We all do. We all have some sort of trial that is coming up. There's something on the horizon in each and every one of our lives that is designed to test us and to push us even to the limits. Why? Because a storm is God's tool for teaching, refining, and growing. It's that which test the fabric of our faith. 
and shows us where it truly is with the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us the understanding that we're able to trust, or at least to the degree that we're able to trust Him and that which we have absolutely no control over. The psalmist looked at the seasons of a storm. I'm not going to turn there just because of time. But in chapter 31, and he looked at four sections of a, of a trial that correspond with, with the seasons. And looking at that and being able to relate to that, it, it, it makes it real, or it should make it real to all of our lives. So in, in Psalm 31, it divides off very nicely, and verses 1 through 8 is autumn. Autumn? It's the coming trial, but also the building of the spirit of trust. It's that which before a trial hits, it's the preparation. It's the preparation and understanding that there's always going to be storms upon the horizon. See, what always follows autumn is winter. And so that being the case, God's people need to be constantly prepared for what is on the horizon. And so, in verses 1 through 5, it seems as if the psalmist is even in prayer, knowing that trouble is coming. Job chapter 5, verse 7 says, Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. It's a natural occurrence in the human life. And then, it happens. Winter hits. See, it's kind of weird in California. Like, summer hits, and then the next day winter hits, and then summer hits here. We just had summer yesterday, and we kind of got winter today. Well, back where they have seasons, this would make better understanding. So winter hit, the trial comes, and the psalmist seems to be overwhelmed. Even for a period of time, he takes his eyes off the Lord, and it looks like the trial is going to prevail in his life. It's those times when you feel as if this trial is a flood, and you're treading water, and you're about to go under, and You even yell out for God, does He even care? Is He even concerned about what's going on in your life? Well, Proverbs 3.5 tells us to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So regardless of what the trial is, the the, the key in the midst of it is, is to keep your eyes on the Lord. Because there's one thing everybody here has to admit, that every trial you've ever been into, God's delivered you. He has, because you're sitting here right now. God has delivered you, and there, if it was like me, there seems to be times that you're going to go under. seems to be times that this was going to be it, but God prevailed every time. And then after winter comes spring, verses 14 through 18, again in Psalm 31, the trust returns and the Lord has triumphed. You see, and that God was with me all the time, even those times when I wasn't really trusting, even those times when it seems like I was going to go under and it was all going to be over. It was the Lord who delivered me. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, Every word of God is pure, and He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. I, I, I can think of the hardest trial that I went through, and if you ask me, how did you get through it? Well, in the flesh, I can't explain it. In the Spirit, I just know that it was the hand of God. And I know that it was for the purpose of growth, and I know that it was for the purpose of trust. And that God meets you in the midst of these trials in a supernatural way. In a way, again, that the deliverance of it you can't explain other than you just know that it was from God. And then fourthly, there's that fourth season, summer, verses 19 through 24. Trust is rewarded by total deliverance. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me, and He heard my cry. A very good outline for all of us. Now, 
going into the storm, you need to know a couple of things. First of all, now there's parallels to this in other Gospels, and so we don't see it here, but we see it in Matthew chapter 14, in Matthew's account of Christ walking upon the water, Jesus, this storm, Jesus sent them into it. Now here it says that Jesus went to the mountains, and it makes it sound like his disciples just went down to the sea, but Matthew gives a little bit more insight. He commanded them to get into the boat and to go to the other side. But it wasn't so much that. He commanded them to go into the storm. Why? Because again, there's reasons and purposes for it. Now, look how you pray. Look how we all pray. Here comes a trial. Trial's coming and you're going to realize the magnitude of it. How do you go about your prayers? Do you pray, Lord, deliver me from this trial? Maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe he's got something that you need in that trial. Have you ever thought to pray, Lord, teach me, instruct me, and cause me to grow in this trial? I can't tell you. I mean, if you look at the prayer chain, you look at the prayer requests, and all of these things, it's deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. And I can't really say that I'm a whole lot different than that. But, Lord, how about if you embrace the trial? Lord, Show me what you have. Enable me to get through this, Lord, that I may see the hand of God upon my life. We're told in James chapter 1 that the reason for the trials that we are going through is for the purpose of growth and maturity. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, he didn't say count it all joy as you have gone through trials. He's talking about count it all a joy as you're about to go through a trial. Have you ever done that? That's a hard thing to do. Verse 3, knowing, this is something that a born-again believer can know, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete. Speaking of Christian maturity, lacking nothing. I think the number well, there's, I think there's two keys to Christian maturity and recognizing Christian maturity in your life. First of all, as a teacher of the word, Secondly, is the trust that you exhibit as you go through the trials of your life. And so, first thing to see is that Jesus is the one who sent them into the storm. We'll go into a trial and we'll think of what the devil has brought into our life. No, no. God allows the trials in your life for his reasons and his purposes. Secondly, they have been through a similar storm before. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, Remember, they're going through the same sea, Sea of Galilee, and as they're going through that, they're going through this storm, and their very lives are being tested. Now, again, keep in mind who the majority of these guys are. They've lived their lives upon that sea. So if this is a storm, we'll just look at Peter. If this is a storm that causes Peter to be afraid, it's got to be some kind of a storm. So there is the reality of the storm. And they're looking, and they're seeing Jesus. He's in the back of the boat, and he's sleeping. And they're concerned about, Lord, don't you even care that we're all about to die? And then he gets up, and we know that he calms the storm. And so the point of that storm and the future ones, see, they they should have learned the lesson. But Jesus, even though he's sending you into the storm, it's important to know that he is Lord of the storm. He's Lord of the trials that come into your life. Now, if these are coming into your life for God's purposes, don't you think that God would be well familiar with what you're about to go through? And what is it that gets us through? Well, since he's Lord of the storm, it would be our faith in him. It's not our faith in what we're able to do, because look at Peter as the example. 
He thought he was going to perish. He was absolutely helpless to do anything. It was his dependency upon Christ that got him through. Third thing is, on this, their solo trip, Christ isn't in the boat as they go into the storm, he gave them a reminder. Remember that reminder from last week of what he is able to do? Paul said he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so they're about to go into a situation where they will hunger and thirst for their very lives. But there they are sitting in the corner. That reminder of what Christ was able to do. Remember their solution to the ministry when those 5,000 hungry people were looking for something to eat? Send them away. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And the only thing they had was, again, that lunch of that poor child. And, and so Jesus, he multiplied it, but they also filled 12 baskets full of the fragments. And so there's an object lesson sitting in the boat there of what Christ is able to do, and he made it personal. He gave one basket for each of them. Remember when you thought there was absolutely nothing and no way of feeding these people? They should be looking at those baskets and remember that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He just did it a little while ago in your lives, guys. You just saw the miracle. Well, the problem is they saw the miracle, but they don't see the Lord because they're limiting Him. He's not with us. He's unable to move. We're by ourselves. We're doomed for sure. But what is He doing again? He's sitting these standards and these principles because He's not going to be physically seen after a period of time, after He ascends into heaven. But nonetheless, this puts us kind of in the boat right now. As they're going through this storm, Christ is still with them. Remember, he's on the mountain. And we're, we're told he's watching, over, he's watching them row. He's watching them strain. He's watching them struggle. Why? Because he knows there's strength in the struggle. My granddaughter Malachi, they're wanting her to roll over and eventually crawl and after a period of time walk, well, the first thing you do is you just set her and let her stay there. And she struggles and she'll even get mad and she'll start crying. But the important thing is there's strength in the struggle. And so sitting in the corner of that boat were those fragments, verses 12, or verse 12 and 13. So they were filled and they said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Why? Because there's an important object lesson later on. In Mark chapter 6, verse 52, it says, For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Well, they were about to understand. The fruit of what Jesus is able to do, again, it's right there in the corner, but Jesus is not physically there. But in a couple of years, he will not be visibly there, but they will be reminded that he is always with them, always able to provide for them. Second Corinthians 5, 7 tells us we walk by faith and not by sight. Verses 15 through 18, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. So this is going to be a good mile trip across a raging storm. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because of a great wind was blowing. So, here they are. Matter of fact, verse 19. So when they had rowed about three or four hours, it's then that they saw Jesus coming. But the fact of the matter is, they're rowing in the dark three hours or so, and they're struggling. 
And so the disciples, at this point, they have to be at their wit's end, knowing that this big storm is a big storm to these men who live their lives on that lake. Point being is, this is a big trial. This is a real trial. This is a trial that is testing the very fabric of who they are, because that's the only effective trial. The trials in your life, now again, you may look at the person next to you, behind you, and and hear about their trial and think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it is a big deal because that's real in their life, and that's what God has specifically for them. Your trial may not be the same trial as their trial is, but your trial is going to be that that tests, again, the very fabric of who you are. We're told here it's dark. The idea is, to me, they can't see a way out of it. There's no way out. We're, we're just going into the storm and, and we're lost and this may be it. And then what have they been doing? From dusk to 3 a.m., they've been rowing and they've only gone three to four miles. Okay, so the lake, it was five miles wide. That, that's right, Lake Capernaum, not one, but five miles. And so they've only gone three to four miles and so they're just a little bit more than, than halfway And so the idea here is they've been trying to rectify the situation through their own efforts, and is all they've gotten is tired. And again, we go into a trial, and the first thing, especially as a man, I need to fix this. I need to make it better. And we'll try to do so through our own strength. And God would say, well, you have the opportunity here to depend upon me or try and fix this thing yourself. But the only thing you're going to get by doing it yourself is is tired and and frustrated on top of that. I I speak from experience. Or, now I'm not saying don't do anything, but the point is, is to seek the Lord and to understand that it's the Lord who ultimately is going to deliver you from the trial. Verses 19 and 20, So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, Do not be afraid. So as Jesus enters the picture, once again, the storm storm becomes an immediate submission to Him. And so, three things that we see as we combine Matthew, Mark, and John's account on the same happening that are applicable, lessons for the church age. First, we have to see, as I mentioned just a little while ago, Jesus is watching over them the whole time. We see this in Mark 6.48. When he had saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them, now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have even passed them by. And so as Christ was on that mountain praying, again, it was laid out before him. As we were in our hotel in Tiberias, you could see all the way through to the other side. And so Christ was able to see, Christ is well aware of your struggles. Christ is well aware of the pain. He's well aware of the fatigue. He's well aware of all that you're going through and he desires to, well, he desires to come and meet you in the midst of it. How long is it going to take? Just as long is as necessary. They are going to go through so many other storms. We're going to go through so many other storms in the future. It's important for us to know that he is watching It's the just, it's the omnipresence of God, the just of what is being spoken of. I'm going to go ahead and turn there. In Psalm 139, David knows this well because I think he's experienced it in his life so many times. It says in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend into heaven, he's talking about going up into the atmosphere, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, he's talking about into the middle of the earth, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, he's speaking of the dawn, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the deepest part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, speaking of an intense trial, even the night shall be like light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. And so, there's Christ. Christ is well aware of, don't think of it as us. Don't think of he's well aware of our trial. He's well aware of you. He's well aware of your trial. He's well desiring to meet you in the midst of it for the purpose of delivering you from it. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them, you just gave the great commission to go forth and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so he's talking to the disciples, go out and do what I've commanded you to do. Go out and make disciples. And if you're obedient to that, you're going to go through some pretty hard times. Again, we know this by reading the Word of God. But he's saying, I am going to be with you. Now, when he says you, he's not just saying them, because he says even to the end of the age. When he says the end of the age, he means the end of the church age. And so the you there, we're part of that you. And so Christ is saying, as you're obedient to me, I'm going to be there with you. And so as we're obedient to the call of the Lord in our lives, the Lord is going to be with us through every step of the way. Secondly, I need to understand that the Lord watches over us for the purpose of shepherding us, for the purpose of keeping us and protecting us. Verse 20, he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. We're well aware of Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his sake. And then the third thing I need to understand, go ahead and turn. Turn over to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew's account of the story. Matthew chapter 14, verse 27. You know the story, but do us well to look at it. Matthew chapter 14, verse 27. They saw him walking on the water and they thought it was a ghost and it says they cried out for fear. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And Peter had come down out of the boat. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. You want to be used by God? Do you want to do mighty things for the Lord? Do you want to bask in the glory of God? You've got to get out of the boat. Now, keep in mind, the only reason that you get out of the boat, or the only time that you get out of the boat, is when God calls you to come out of the boat. 
You don't just get out of the boat. What happens if Peter just got out of the boat? He sinks like a stone. But the reason he could get out and get out of the boat and the reason he should have had faith is because Christ called him to get out of the boat. The reason the apostles should not have been afraid because Jesus said, get in the boat and go to the other side. It doesn't matter if there's a storm. It doesn't matter if there's hardship. When God tells you you're going to go to the other side, you're going to go to the other side. The reason Jesus, I'm sorry, uh, Peter should have had faith is because Christ told them to come. Christ told them. And again, he did it. He did it for a little bit. The rest of the guys could have laughed at him and said, man, you were sinking like a rock, and it's a good thing Christ was there. And he could turn around and say, I walked on the water. It may have been just a second or two, but Peter walked on the water. And the only reason the other guys didn't walk on the water is they didn't ask and they didn't act. But if you ask and you act and Christ says come, you'll see yourselves being able to do things you thought were never possible. He got out of the boat. What's the boat? boat might be an easy job. might be a comfortable lifestyle. It might be money in the bank. Those things within themselves aren't bad, but they are bad if that's your security apart from Christ. And so, that being the case, am I willing to trust Christ with my life? Am I willing to trust Him with my everything or for my everything? Most of our successes are built upon our previous failures. Peter, Peter walked on the water but then he sank. Later on, he's going to have tremendous faith, such faith that he's willing to go and be crucified. He was, history tells us he was crucified upside down. He was unworthy to be crucified as the Lord did. But we also see in the book of Acts the miracles that Peter was able to work. He was able to do amazing things. What did he do? Jesus said, follow me, and he did. He got out of his boat, and he followed the Lord. Psalm 94, verse 18 If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. And so Peter, Peter, he was told to come. And when Peter, verse 29, had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. That's one of the most amazing scriptures to me, that he did walk on the water. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. So what did Peter have? He had faith because he got out of the boat and he did walk on the water, but he only had one step worth of faith or however long it was, we don't know. But he was very immature at the time. One step is good because you know what one step leads to? It leads to two. And two steps lead to, well, a life of walking with the Lord or at least walking in obedience with the Lord. But the key is you've got to take the first step. And unfortunately, and I shouldn't say unfortunately because that's not true, but the hard part is it's out of the boat. It's out of the, the first step is out of the place of security. But I guarantee you, if you take that first step in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never sink. Back to John chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. But when he, when Christ said to them, it is I, do not be afraid, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It's kind of funny that it says here, and they willingly received him into the boat. Do you keep him outside of the boat? I mean, you you know, well, you're, you're doing pretty good walking. We're not doing very well rowing. Well, 
How many times have you seen a born-again believer that's going through some major hardship and they keep Christ out of the boat? They're not really praying. They're not getting into the Word of God. Matter of fact, the commonality I see to church is, whatever happened to so-and-so? I haven't seen him in a while. Oh, I talked to him not too long ago. They're going through some hard thing. Well, how come they're not at church? How come they're not like at church? How come they're not constantly seeking believers to pray with them? How come they're not here so we can lift them up and so we can support them? And the idea here is, behind that is, they're keeping Christ out of the boat. And so the main message, I guess, is not so much stepping out of the boat, although that's important, but you have to be willing to receive Christ into your boat. Because if you don't, the boat's simply going to sink. It's to give up control as captain and become first mate or or maybe even just some lower-class under-rower. So what is this lack of fear and intense trust based upon? Well, look in John chapter 6, verse 20, it says, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. If you get a Hebrew, I'm sorry, a Greek lexicon, New Testament's in, in Greek, and you look up the term for it is I, it can also be translated, I am, I am. But he said to them, I am, do not be afraid. Since Jesus is, there's no reason to be afraid. And again, there's just a little, every once in a while, especially in the Gospel of John, Killed back some of his humanness to reveal some of his deity. And we see that God truly is, through Jesus Christ, able to provide for all of our needs. He is truly able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So verses 1 through 21 are foundational, especially to that which is about to come in verses 22 through 71. How could Jesus provide bread as he did in the wilderness to the 5,000? Well, chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And as powerful as the great I am is, if you want to jump ship, you can. You can. You don't have to invite him into the boat. If you don't invite him to the boat, you continue to row, and you continue to row hard. And he walks to the other side. Remember, he was going to pass them by. In John chapter 6, verses 66 through 67 from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? You also want to leave? Will they understand the value of Christ in the boat, a God with them? It's only because Christ is with them and watching over them that they know that they're going, they don't understand the whole concept and everything that's going on, but they understand when Christ is with us, even the wind and the waves obey him. Father, I pray that we would have faith such as that. That, Lord, we would truly come to the understanding that as we study your word such as we have tonight, that these aren't just stories, they're not just happenings, but these are realities that are to be made real in our lives. Father, I pray for those here tonight that are going through storms, And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen them in the midst of it, that this would truly be your tool into their life. I pray, Father, that they would seek you out and bring you into the boat, or if you're calling them out of the boat, Father, that they would take that step of obedience. But Lord, nonetheless, it still shows us, your word, this section of Scripture, that you are truly Lord of the storm. The trials that we enter into are that which you have allowed us to go into. But Father, you have told us that you will meet us in the midst of them and you will get us through them. 
And so, Father, we just thank you for tonight. And once again, your word that, Lord, is very real and living and powerful within our lives. I pray, Father, that we would recognize the next time of trial and understand, Father, the degree of deliverance that you are able to give us. And so, Father, again, we just thank you and praise you for all that you do. We lift ourselves to you that you would strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.